Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11, Hebrews chapter 11. And the fellas are making their way down the aisle with copies of the Scripture for anybody who needs one. So as they make their way back, get their attention, and they'll get a copy of the Bible to you. It is marked at Hebrews 11 so that you can follow along as we look at God's Word together. Hebrews 11. A recent New York Times article was titled, In What Can We Trust? And it lamented the fact that the things that were at one time trusted by most people are no longer. The media, for example. Mistrust of the media is so high now that it's hard for many to believe that the title Most Trusted Man in America actually belonged to a nightly news anchorman, Walter Cronkite. He was the CBS Evening News anchor from 1962 until 1981. In the month before his retirement, a Harris poll probed Cronkite's standing with the public, and they asked specifically if Cronkite was, quote, someone you could really trust. 81% said they could. Only 12% said they could not. Absolutely could not imagine that kind of percentage today for any media person. But the guy who succeeded Cronkite was Dan Rather, who in 2004 was forced to resign for using fake documents in one of his investigative reports. The government was at one time trusted by most people, believe that or not. But the misleading statements from the government about and during the Vietnam War and later the Watergate scandal that forced President Nixon to resign in disgrace, those made more people skeptical of the truthfulness of the government. And in the years since Watergate, of course, government has done little to regain that trust. In the 50s through the 80s, in many places in America, a young person could literally walk out of their high school graduation ceremony and begin work the next day for a company at which they were promised that they could stay until retirement. And after 30 years of service, they would have a comfortable lifestyle in that retirement. And that happened for many, many people for several decades, some of you. And so it came as a surprise and even a shock when companies began to renege on their promises in recent years. Retirement monies that had been promised were not there, or benefits that were pledged were not provided. The trust between company and worker is broken. Even in the church, trust is very, very low. Scandal after scandal. In the 80s, there was Jimmy Swaggart, Jim Baker, more recently Ted Haggard, and, of course, the priest sex abuse scandals of the past decade. They've all contributed to a lack of trust in religious leaders and religious institutions. The title of the New York Times article, In What Can We Trust?, seems mislabeled because it really should be, In Whom Can We Trust?, because, after all, the institutions of media and government and business and church, they are all comprised of people. People who ask for trust, 
but as we've sadly seen, are often not worthy of it. Or closer to home, literally. I don't place my trust in marriage as an institution, but in the person I married. And so we don't place our trust in something, but in someone. But what if I place my trust in the wrong someone? The truth is, people can and do betray. And many of us have experienced it. Sinful people, even people to whom we've been close, perhaps even married to, do betray that trust. And not only is betrayal possible in any of our human relationships, but the relationship can end simply due to death. People pass on, sometimes long before their expected time. And even if a, a couple is allowed to be together into old age, one of the sentiments a spouse often utters when left behind by a partner of many years is, and I've heard it many times, how could you leave me? Even in death, one can feel a sense of betrayal. Hear this, friends. We cannot, and we must not, place our ultimate trust in people. People can fall and lie and betray, and they certainly, certainly will die. In the words of that great theologian, Stevie Nicks of Fleetwood Mac, who said about her dad and the process of aging, I've been afraid of changing because I've built my life around you. But even children get older, and I'm getting older too. And so you say, how can I live without trusting people in my relationships? But notice, I didn't say you don't trust people. I said don't place your ultimate trust in people. When I trust another at work or in the home or at church or the government, I am fully aware of the potential for failure. But my ultimate trust is in the God who providentially placed me in that relationship. He will accomplish His purpose in me through that experience. He will fulfill His promises to me in that situation. He will honor my obedience to Him in the midst of my relationships, no matter what the other party does. He will graciously work in your life. Even when people betray you, though it will deeply wound you, you will not be fatally wounded. And we need examples of people who live like that, who follow the Lord even when we can't see the logic and we, and we can't see the end. We need examples of people who follow the Lord even though it means hardship and ridicule. Because if you can't see it as a believer, your unbelieving family and your co-workers certainly can't see. Why do you stick with this? Why do you do that? Why are you putting yourself through it? And today in Hebrews 11, we have yet another example of what God did in and through a person who trusted Him. Verse 7. By faith... Noah, 
who warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. It tells us that by faith, as a result of faith, these descriptions in verse 7 are true of Noah. Now, if you've been with us for any of these messages in the book of Hebrews, you should know then that the New Testament words for faith and belief are precisely the same. Faith is belief. To have faith means to believe. And Noah believed things that he had been warned about, but things he had not seen. And this reminds us of verse 1 of Hebrews 11 where faith is defined for us as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Believing God, having faith in the promises of God, produces a number of things in our lives. I have five of them for you in the outline that was inserted in your program. The first of those is certainty. Believing God, having faith in God's promises, produces certainty. Now, what was it that Noah believed, though, according to verse 7, he had not seen? What was that? In order to see that, we need to turn back to the first part of your Bible, the opening pages, Genesis chapter 6. We'll come back to Hebrews 11, so please hold your finger there. But in the opening pages, the sixth chapter of the Word of God, a description is given of the world during the time of Noah and the difference in Noah and the rest of society. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. And so the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And this is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. 
You're going to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You're to take every kind of food that's to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah, by faith, Noah believed warnings about things he had not seen. And God tells Noah in verses 5 and 12, the Bible says, And God saw, and the Lord saw. And what a sickening contrast it is to chapter 1 and verse 31. Do you remember chapter 1, the very first chapter of your Bible? Verse 31, after God in six days created all things, he says in verse 31, and the Lord God saw that it was very good. It was very good. That's what God saw. And now in chapter 6, of Genesis, verses 5 and 12 tell us that God saw that the thoughts and the inclinations of the hearts of people was only evil continually. And he warned Noah about the destruction, the judgment, the just judgment that he was going to bring upon the earth. And Noah believed what he had never seen. Now, what things had Noah not seen? He believed that it would rain. Though in all likelihood, Noah had never seen that. He believed that judgment would come, as God said, via a flood, though he had never seen a flood. He believed that he could build this enormous structure, though Noah had never seen a ship of that size. As a matter of fact, no one had seen a ship of that size before or after until recent times with the metal ships that we are able to construct. He believed that this boat, this ark, would rescue those who came in for safety, including his family, though, of course, it hadn't happened. Faith meant, believing meant that Noah could see with the eyes of his heart what he could not see with the eyes of his head. So much so that he was certain that what God said was true. He trusted God and he acted accordingly. Because that faith, that belief, produced certainty within Noah. And so one commentator has said, Faith is absolutely certain of what it believes is true and what it expects will come. Another has said, Faith is not a power which you possess to create your own future. Faith is a God-given ability to trust the future that God has promised to you even though, of course, you can't see that future. Faith produces certainty of what we do not see, and it produces, according to verse 1, assurance of what we hope for. The hope that we have in the New Testament, as I have mentioned to you many times, hope in the Bible is not a wish, but rather a confident expectation. We have the hope of what God has promised, and we confidently expect that it will come to pass. The Bible speaks of these three Christian virtues several times in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 13, faith and hope and also love 
And it does so in that order. Faith, hope, love. Faith is believing. Hope is a confident expectation because I believe the promises of God, particularly with regard to my future that I cannot see. Faith believes what God says. Believing what God says develops confident expectation for the future. And because I have nothing to lose, because my future is secure, even though I can't see it, hear this, friends, I can give myself in love for God and others. Faith and hope and love. And so here's Noah. He believes God. And that produces certainty that causes him to express his love for God and for others in obeying what God has said. Do you remember Jesus said, if you love me, do what? Keep my commands. But how was he able to do that? How was Noah able to do it? Because he believed what he could not see. And he had a confident expectation about what God had promised. And therefore, he puts it into action in love for God and for the others for whom he built the safety of this ark. Believing God produces certainty. And it produces obedience as well. Chapter 6 and verse 22 of Genesis tells us Noah did all that God commanded him. He built the ark. And he built the ark exactly according to God's specifications. And Hebrews 11 and verse 7 tells us, In holy fear, Noah built an ark. Now, Noah had not seen a boat, nor a flood. He was probably not near water to see any boats of any size. But he believed God, so he constructs this enormous structure. Now, how enormous? In chapter 6, we read the dimensions, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. So 450 feet long, that is a football field and a half. It is 45 feet high, that is nearly four stories. How could this guy build this? Well, chapter 6 and verse 3 tells us he had 120 years. Further... He was 480 when he started. He was 600 when he ended. He lived another 350 years after the flood for a total of 950. That's all according to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 28. So at 480, when he starts building the ark, he's middle-aged. He's equivalent to his late 30s for us. And as we'll see a little bit later, he probably had help. And Noah believed what he could not see. And you haven't seen the ark, and I have not seen the ark, but there are undoubtedly some of you here right now having trouble believing what you have not seen. You're saying, I don't care how big this thing was, he did not get all those animals in there. I'm going to spend a bunch of time on this but let me debunk that myth quickly because it is a myth. At 450 feet long, one and a half football fields and four stories high, you had 100,000 square feet of floor space. 
there was enough space for the equivalent of 569 modern-day rail cars. 569. Still, is that going to hold the animals? Well, it's been calculated by Drs. Whitcomb and Morris that no more than, at tops, 35,000 different animals needed to be on the ark. That's because those that could swim, which are thousands and thousands, didn't need to be on the ark. Further, they didn't have to bring the largest of each type. No more than 35,000 animals needed to go. But let's be generous, add a reasonable number to include even extinct animals, animals that lived then but are extinct now. And then add some more to satisfy even the most skeptical. Let's say 50,000 animals, it's far more than was required, were on board the ark, and they need not be, have been the largest or even adult specimens. Remember, there are really only a few very large animals, such as a dinosaur or an elephant. Those could be represented by young ones. Assuming the average animal is about the size of a sheep, using a railroad car for comparison, the average double-deck stock car can accommodate 240 sheep. Three trains hauling 69 cars would have ample space to carry 50,000 animals. You've still got 500 cars left over. That leaves an additional 500 cars, enough to make five trains of more cars than is needed for Noah's Ark to carry all the food and the baggage, plus Noah's family of eight people. The Ark had plenty of space. You say, well, if God talked to me, if God spoke to me and gave me a promise about my future, I could believe like Noah did, and I could obey like Noah did. But friends, that's what the writer of Hebrews' burden is to tell you. From the very first verse, he says, In the past, God spoke. Do you remember the very first verse? God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at various times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. God has spoken to you. And God has made promises to you. And the question is, do you and do I, like Noah, believe? And if we believe, we will obey. What has God promised to you about your future? You know, he hasn't said, hey, there's a flood coming, build a boat. Here are the dimensions. I grant that. But God has said this to you. That I work all things together for good. For those who love me and are called according to my purpose. And we sometimes have that passage in needlepoint. That's one of our favorite verses. Maybe sometimes we call it a life verse. Maybe that's your life verse. That's a great life verse. But we forget the rest of it. He goes on to describe in that passage, all the way down to verse 39, the things that God may allow to come into the life of a believer. But he promises, none of these things shall separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. None of these things. That's your promise. That's my promise. If we believe that promise, then come what may, 
whatever's going on in your life. You believe it. You act upon it because you have a confident expectation of the future. You have hope. And you express your love for God and others because you obey. Believing God produces obedience, certainty. Thirdly, in your outline, believing God produces conviction. Hebrews 11, verse 7 again, says this of Noah, by faith, his faith, he, Noah, condemned the world. So when I say in the outline it produces conviction, indeed it produces conviction for us. We are convinced of what God says is true, but it produces conviction in the legal sense against those who fail to believe. And that's what happened in the life of Noah. Because Noah believed and then acted upon what he believed, his faith condemned the world. It convicted the world of their unbelief. The Bible tells us that Noah was a preacher. Second Peter chapter 2. God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people but protected Noah. Now notice, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And then those of his family. What light did these folks that were not spared have such that they could be justly condemned by a holy God? They had the light of creation. As every person has, Romans chapter 1, God has made plain to all people truth about himself. Further, they had the light of conscience. Romans chapter 2 and verse 15 tells us that all people have that. Further, they had the word of God because we saw in the life of Enoch last week that Enoch walked with God by, by faith. And I reminded you then that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. In other words, Enoch had to have been instructed by God in how to walk by faith. So they've been warned with the word of God and they've been warned through the preaching of Noah. Now, Noah had 120 years to build the ark. But undoubtedly, he had other people help him do that during those 120 years, which means you have people helping Noah build the ark. They hear Noah preaching, a preacher of righteousness. And how many of them believed and got on board the ark? None. Zero. And so in the life of Noah, there was word conviction toward those in the, the then world, and there was life conviction as well. Noah's very life and the things that Noah did because of his belief, because of his faith, were a conviction to those around him. Every nail that Noah pounded into the ark convicted the world, condemned the world for its unbelief. The very building of the ark judged the world. Every tree that was cut down, every axe stroke in the process of cutting down the tree was itself part of the condemnation to those who did not come to get in the ark. Every plank that was brought in, every nail that was nailed in those planks, and then you had the sermons that Noah preached, all of them redounded to the condemnation of those who failed to believe God. Did you know, friends, that those who believe will bring conviction 
to those around them. By the mere fact that they believe and act upon that belief. I heard the story of a professional golfer who was unnamed in the story. But he had a round of golf with a famous Christian evangelist. And at the end of their 18 holes together, this professional golfer goes into the clubhouse and throws his clubs, and he's swearing up and down, and he says, I'm a good guy, I'm a family man, and I don't need this guy cramming his religion down my throat. And his buddy said to him, what did he say to you? He said, nothing. I've seen rounds of golf like that. Where the guy who really gets into it is behaving the way he really does when he really gets into it. And he's letting go with a blue streak and all that. And you hit a bad shot, which, which I do all the time. But you don't do that. And that's convicting. Your mere belief and your mere action, obedience, based upon that belief, produces conviction in the lives of those around you. Believing God produces certainty. And it produces obedience and conviction. And fourthly, it produces righteousness. And it produces two kinds of righteousness. Notice verse number 7 of Hebrews 11. By his faith, Noah condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. There are two kinds of righteousness in the Bible. There is what's called objective righteousness and then subjective. Let me explain those quickly. Objective righteousness is the righteousness that is counted to us, that is outside of ourselves, that comes to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is completely righteous, who lived an absolutely righteous life. And when we come to him initially, believing who he is and what he has done, when we do that, then his perfect righteousness is counted to us. That's objective righteousness. And that's why the Bible says this about that righteousness. Romans chapter 1, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. And it's a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, the righteous will live by faith. Romans 3, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Paul, who wrote Philippians chapter 3, says this, I do not have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from keeping any set of rules, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And then the Bible tells us that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Noah was an heir of this righteousness. First, this objective righteousness that comes to us when the perfect, righteous life of Jesus is applied to us when we believe who he is and what he has done. But it leads to a subjective righteousness. Because the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 6 that Noah, like Enoch, walked with God. And he obeyed God. And so it was not simply that he had this righteousness from Christ that's outside of himself that is graciously counted to him. He had that. That's what happens when we come to salvation by faith in Christ. But then that produced a subjective righteousness in the experience of the one who believes. That's the reason 
that Noah is included at this point in Hebrews 11, Faith's Hall of Fame. Because we've seen two other characters so far. We've seen Abel. And if you remember when we looked at the faith of Abel, we saw the worship of faith. And last week we saw Enoch, and in Enoch we saw the walk of faith. And now in Noah we see the work of faith. Those who believe will show that belief by what they do. And so believing God produces certainty and obedience and conviction And it produces righteousness in the one who believes. But then last, it produces salvation. The last part of verse 7 says that Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And the middle of verse 7 says that in building this ark, Noah saved himself and his entire family. The word heir at the end of verse number 7 is a word that speaks of grace. Because you see, if you inherit, if you are an heir of something that belongs to someone else and they give it to you, it is not because you've earned it. And, And Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, why did Noah have all of this? If you come away from this message and you think, Noah was a terrific guy. That's okay as long as immediately you think in your mind, Noah was a terrific guy because Noah knew a marvelous, a wonderful God. And if we come away from looking at these heroes of the faith and we forget that they are who they are only by the grace of God, then we have missed what God seeks to tell us. It is by His grace and only by His grace that Noah became an heir of righteousness. Back in Genesis chapter 6, before we are told that Noah walked with God and Noah was known as a righteous man, before that, verse number 8 of Genesis 6 tells us this. We read it together. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. When it says Noah found favor, it's the word for grace. Noah found grace. In the eyes of the Lord. And because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, the Lord who gave that grace produced in him the things that we see in Hebrews 11 and verse 7. And why did Noah find grace in the eyes of the Lord? (laughs) Friends, if you come up with a list of cool things about Noah, you've missed what grace is. Why have you found grace in the eyes of the Lord? And if you come up with a list of, well, because I, and because I, because I, you don't know what grace is. Grace is undeserved, unearned, and before we come to Christ, it is even unwanted merit from God, favor from God. And so 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 says this, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose And grace, this grace, was given us in Christ Jesus. Now get when. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So believing God produces salvation, but we believe God 
when we find favor in the eyes of God, a gracious God who does this to those who do not deserve it. And faith then becomes the channel through which grace comes. Faith is the channel through which grace comes. Grace initiates the belief, the faith. And it's the channel through which now the grace of God, initiated by God in the life of the one who believes, manifests itself as it did in Noah and as it must in us. I've told you that faith means belief. And it does. But that belief, that faith, has three components to it. Let me give you those three components. Biblical faith, belief, has these three components. Knowledge. You cannot believe what you do not know. And so you must hear, you must know. It has knowledge so that there's an object of that belief. Knowledge. But then secondly, assent. I hear it. I know about it. I know about the person and work of Christ. And I assent that it is true. I believe who the Bible says Jesus is and what he did. I assent to its truth. It is true. But it has a third component that many people don't quite appropriate. They have a truncated and less than biblical faith. It's knowledge. It is assent. But it is also, it is also trust. I trust God with my very soul, with my past, with my present, and with my future. And if I trust God, because I believe God, then that will manifest itself in the way I serve God and the way I live for God. I read an illustration of what this trust looks like in a doctor and a patient. There was a skeptical physician who had a patient who was a Christian. And he asked the patient, I can never understand saving faith. I believe in God and I suppose I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm not conscious of any doubts. I believe Christ was the Son of God. I believe the Bible, yet I'm not saved. What's the matter with me? And the patient said to the doctor, well, a day or two ago, I believed in you. I believed in you as a very skilled physician. I believed that you would be able to heal me if I should get sick. And then I realized I was sick and I sent for you and I put myself in your hands to be healed. In other words, I trusted you. And for two days now, I've been taking some mysterious stuff out of a bottle. And by the way, the medications are mysterious stuff, aren't they? Do you ever notice the pharmacist never puts it together in front of you? They like disappear and then they come out. I'd prefer they do it in front of us, but nonetheless... But what do you do? Even though you didn't see what they did with it, you you take it. You don't know what it is. The name itself is too hard for you to pronounce. But you take it. And so this man said, I don't know what it is. I don't understand it, doctor, but I'm trusting you. And now whenever you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, say to him, Lord Jesus, Christianity seems to me to be full of things that are mysteries. I do not understand them, but I believe that you are trustworthy worthy and I trust you and I commit myself to you that is biblical faith we know and we assent we trust our very souls 
in the present and into the future to the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, when we don't believe what God has said, we start replacing what God has said with what we think God should have said. If you find yourself in that position, God should have said something different about my life. God should have written a different script about my life. You can be sure that the root of that is you do not fully trust God. But you can recommit your trust to Him as we bow before Him. Further, those of you who have never come to Jesus Christ can do so in the moments we're going to share right now. We're going to bow before Him. Having seen what biblical faith produces, biblical belief produces, one of the things it produces is salvation, believing God for one way of salvation. That's what Noah and his family did. What was their way to be saved, to be rescued, to be delivered? It's in that boat. It's in that ark. You get in there. If you believe me and if you trust me, you will get in there. And over 40 days, as these rains come and these floodwaters rise, you will trust me to save you, to rescue you. And God has said, you have one way of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. In who he is, God the Son, having come to earth to do for you what you could not do for yourself. What did he do? He died to pay the penalty for your sin, every last sin, past and present and even future. And he lived a perfect life of righteousness that is applied to you when you believe in him, when you come to him in faith. You can do that now. You can pray to him from your heart in your own words to God. Lord God, I'm a sinner. I need to be rescued. I need to be saved. I need to be delivered. And Jesus is the ark that does that. And so I ask you to apply to me what he did on my behalf. He died for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. Cover my sin with the blood of Jesus and apply his perfect life of righteousness to me. And I trust you. I commit myself to you. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, thank you for your servant Noah. But thank you most of all for your grace in Noah. Noah, as every creature, is nothing apart from the Creator. And so we thank you that your word tells us explicitly that Noah was a righteous man and Noah was a man who walked with God. But before that, Noah found favor, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We thank you for your mercy and grace that we don't deserve, we don't merit. Prior to coming to you, we didn't even want. But you mercifully have your Holy Spirit move upon our hearts. And at a point in time, we turned to you believing who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and it's made a profound difference in our lives. I pray that there are people who are doing that right now in this room. The Holy Spirit, I ask you to move upon hearts so that they turn to you believing and trusting you with their very souls, giving their lives to you. And those of us who have done that, yet we still waver. I still waver in my belief. Oh, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help our unbelief. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here. And the difficulties that they are undergoing, that a sovereign God has allowed to come into their lives, help them to believe. 
Help them to have the confident expectation that you are going to produce the promises that you have given in their lives. And therefore, help them to love you and love others in the midst of, not in spite of, those circumstances. Help them to embrace the moment that a loving God has placed in their path to better them and to bring glory to yourself. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.